everyone. Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My guest today is Dr. Karen Scott. She's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at UCSF. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, um, thank you for having me. Yes, my name is Dr. Karen A. Scott. I identify as a reproductive justice informed sexual reproductive and perinatal epidemiologist as well as an obstetric hospitalist whose work integrates the social sciences and humanities into participatory health services and quality improvement research. And I am an associate clinical professor as well as an academic OBGYN hospitalist in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. And presently, I am the principal investigator of the Sacred Birth Study at UCSF, funded by the California Healthcare Foundation. You're doing big stuff. Um, So, Dr. Scott, why don't you tell me, so how did you get into academia? That is a a great question to start. So, um, in full transparency, I just entered um, academia September 2019 with my first position as an associate professor at UCSF um, for the last 18 years, um, inclusive of the four years of uh, being a resident, I specifically pursued residency training as well as um, employment opportunities at community hospitals. Um, Uh For me, the reason I did that um, was for philosophical reasons. And um, for me, my background is I was born and raised in the South. to a mother who was a single mother with three young girls. And the circumstances of my neighborhood, right, the context of the conditions in which we're living, as well as the stories and experiences of Black women in my family, it was key for me to train and serve an institution that treated patients that looked like my family and also had lived experiences of my family. Uh same way, in an equitable manner. And I won't name any of those institutions, but during my acting internship, during my fourth year, I just made a commitment to not actually pursue university-based training. And this, again, is like in the early 2000s, 2000, 2001, um, because I just felt um, that the work that I needed to do, like my soul's work, that there was a conflict of values between my soul's work and how the institution's embodied, right, their vision, values, and mission statements specifically to Black women and girls across the sex and gender spectrum, but also across, you know, just very lived experiences, right, and how we partner, how we parent, um, how we work, how we play. And so for me, like 20-something years ago, I actually did not think I would be a good quote-unquote fit and then in 2008, I was inducted into a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and I left the suburb community-based practice to go back to the city, Chicago, and I made a commitment to find you know, an evidence-informed, evidence-based maternal child health intervention that would impact social and health outcomes, but also experiences. And what came up for me was nurse-family partnership. Um, where Uh first-time pregnant families would partner with a nurse across backgrounds, like across the background could be public health, maternal child health, pediatrics, mental health, all of those things. And I had this vision, right? Like 
I'm going to go back to Southside Chicago with this kind of multi-level intervention, right? Moving beyond the individual, transdisciplinary. So I involve folks from business, law enforcement, health, infant mental health, psychiatry, like beyond OBGYN, um, and have these, you know, different types of services and supports, group socialization, infant mental health. Um, that was my vision. I acquired in three years, $2.2 million, and shout out to the Ounce of Prevention Fund, who funded me during that time period. And as the program began to expand, um, it eventually became an exclusively like Black-led um, like program with a nurse supervisor who was Black, a program coordinator, an infant mental health specialist, um, five nurse home visitors, and myself, and really not only addressing the needs of the community, but right, the trauma of being black woman and in healthcare, right? Addressing the needs of my staff. So it was very um, uh -huh. RJ informed, trauma informed, very youth led. I had a community advisory board like 10 years ago when now people do that. I'm like, we were already doing that on the South Side of Chicago. And I realized at that moment that part of the gaps that I needed professionally as well as institutionally, or that I, an academic institution provided infrastructure, specifically around like funds and managing those funds, access to funds, right, that are external and internal, as well as the Department of Epidemiologists, Biostatisticians, and other scientists across nursing, social sciences, humanities that I did not have in a community hospital. And that the light turned on for me to like, I'm going to have to, mm -hmm. you know, cross that bridge. Um, so I started doing things to facilitate, you know, my uptake, right? What's, how can I increase my, um, I don't want to say like my marketability to a university setting when a, a lot of my work has been grounded in community and community based practice, but I didn't have the academic currency of publications. Mm -hmm. So Fast forward to 2020, I obtained my MPH uh -huh. in Applied Epidemi Epidemiology at Emory. I have completed like three fellowships, um, an STD fellowship, a teaching fellowship at my alma mater, Kenyon College, um, what, where I was able to develop a course, um, Intersectionality, Reproductive Justice, Health Equity, and then I also completed a Women's Policy Institute fellowship um, supported by the um, Women's Foundation of California. So really looking at how can I make an impact in four areas, you know, for research, policy, practice, and teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's where I am. And so that has what led me to um, an academic OB-GYN hospitalist role. Um, so I see the hospitalist role is very vital in all four of those areas, especially in public health and policy um, at the institutional level, at the local level, state and national. Um, and UCSF, you know, provide, is providing an opportunity for me to carry out these like 10-year dreams in a manner that I can fill in those gaps of, again, institutional infrastructure um, and access to funding, but also mm -hmm. a team of amazing, brilliant Black women scholars and allies and accomplices across various disciplines that it's definitely enriched my um, my program of research and I am rebuilding um, those relationships and ties that I you know the strategies that I use to build trust and build partnerships with communities I am able to 
learn with and community now in the East Bay area and build that up to where we have the sacred birth study. Um, I'm sure we're going to talk about later, but um, it's all coming together. So I feel like now I'm at a space where I can Mm -hmm. have this hybrid role, right? In relationship between the academy and the community, um, because I feel like I am multilingual in that way as we think about, right? How the community already has a repository, right? Of Mm -hmm. wisdom and knowledge and experiences. How do we, in the academy, and particularly we'll talk about in quality improvement, uplift what's already present and what's working and translate that in ways that the healthcare system can uh, adopt and adapt to improve right our quality of care. So that's been my journey so far. Got it. Sounds really exciting. So recently you published an um, like a perspective piece um, specifically about participatory quality improvement, uh, which to me, and I'm sure to many other people who read it or came across it, is a very novel concept. So do you mind telling me a little bit more about what participatory QI is and what sort of like nuances exist between that and your typical QI initiatives in healthcare Yes, yeah, so um, what, what has kind of emerged from my experiences in California, um, where I was involved in a quality improvement initiative to address um, to address racial disparities, right, in maternal morbidity and mortality, particularly in hospital-based care. Um, what emerged from that was that the traditional ways of doing quality improvement um, have not necessarily addressed, right, the the equity that's needed, right, to really not only bridge the gaps across races, but really, you know, how do the most minoritized, marginalized populations and communities who are carrying the greatest burden of maternal mortality and morbidity, you know, what are the assumptions we have about our community? What are the assumptions that we have about their power and potential? What are the assumptions we have about their capacity and capability to not only say that they're going to generate knowledge, but again, they have an existing knowledge, right? So in my, the blog that I wrote, I'm talking about that if you look at in our communities, and when I say we, I'm speaking of, you know, Black um, populations and communities and families and birthing people, <clears throat> look at the ways in which we have stored data and shared data, right? Through our songs, through hair braiding, through quilts, through ceremonial dances, performances, art, gossip, clothing, labels, like all the trends that we've set, what would it look like if the standard public health surveillance and quality improvement centers, data centers, actually prioritized the lived experiences of Black people? And and the instruments that exist, which I believe are incomplete and deficient, were actually to incorporate different ways of knowing, right? Different ways of being, different ways of communicating. So participatory quality improvement for me allows for kind of this mixed methods approach where I am hoping to bring, you know, the best of quality improvement, which is right, a series of rapid cycle tests of interventions through that PDSA cycle plan, do, study, act. Um, But sometimes that's done in a way, it's systematic, but sometimes their approaches in the traditional QI, they are a theoretical, right? There is not, 
an actual identification or clarification of the framework that's informing the ethics, the values, the assumptions, um, even the problem analysis or the power assessment, you know, moving from a deficit pathology-driven model where to me QI is always, particularly in the setting of Black maternal health, is like, what's wrong with this, right? Like, we as Black people are leading in the rates of preterm birth, low birth, low birth rate, infant mortality, NICU emission, cesarean birth, hypertension, preeclampsia, postpartum hemorrhage, and participatory QI really kind of deconstructs the traditional way to start off from place that is sacred and really looking at Black communities and birth as perhaps it is birth can be seen as resistance or resilient um, or sacred, right? And how do we add the necessary cultural rigor and integrity and validity to QI so that there is an increase in equity and dignity and accountability and the, the provision of care um, and really looking at the workforce, the Black birth workforce, its involvement in QI, including the involvement of activists and artists. So for me, participatory QI sh shifts the power of knowledge construction and also dissemination from QI experts to uh -huh. a community of Black mothers and birthing people and it's done in a way that you don't just invite like the only, which is what I was in California for some time, or the near onlys where you have like two black people on the quote unquote team, but you, you are doing QI and establish equitable and dignified partnerships with black women scholars across disciplines, across borders, geographic borders. Um, and you have to call out what the phenomenon is. So I'm just very grateful to Dr. Joy Career-Perry for saying that it is racism and not race, right? That is the driver for these disparate care, these variations in quality of care and responsiveness to Black birthing people and Black mothers. And I also want to call um, forth Donna Ayin Davis in defining obstetric racism. So for me, participatory QI, you have to start with naming that phenomenon and doing so in partnership with the actual folks who are having the greatest impact. If you have a room full of data scientists, policymakers, payers, physicians, a few sprinkle of nurses and midwives, perhaps even a lactation consultant, but you are lacking the very people who are experiencing death or near deaths in defining right, the phenomenon and naming it, and also in proposing what those methods mm -hmm. and methodologies are, or specifically like the activities, right, to measure that phenomenon, to describe it, to examine it and modify it, then we will see how in some states, as we have all these advancements in technology and reproductive technology, right, such as electronic fetal monitoring or remote fetal monitoring, you know, even the, the use of an IV um, or Pitocin. These are all things that have helped to improve the quality of care and outcomes. But what do those things mean to Black birthing people, right? And if we only focus on clinical outcomes or pathology-driven outcomes and not really the experience as the outcome, I think we're going to continue, not I think, I know, we're going to continue to see where numerous quality improvement initiatives are being undertaken but the experience of racism, right? The experience, the observation of it, the participation in it, 
whether it's willing or unwilling, it's still happening. And so participatory QI really is about, um, really is about how do you take in all the various vantage points and really see how the role of racism or gender racism or obstetric racism is impacting, right? The processes and the policies, um, those, those that are hidden and overt that impact clinical cognition, right? And assessment, diagnosis, um, counseling, uh-huh. um, decision-making, right? And so that's what I'm hoping that participants participatory QI will do is really shift um, the lens from like disparities data only, right? Which I talk about in that blog you mentioned is like, there's this will to want to really be moved by disparities data. And I call that disparities data porn because the compulsion to to change really should be about equity, right? And it really should be about um, the humanity and dignity of black people, Black birthing people, Black families, and how the lack of equity and dignity in QI is part of the problem, right? And so how do we help hospitals to see clinical team behaviors um, in the context of the willingness and responsiveness to view um, a human life not based upon the color of their skin or their insurance status, or their documentation status, or um, a history of substance abuse or stress. But when you look at certain communities, it's a constellation or intersections of all of those. And QI isn't intersectional a lot of times. So I believe participatory QI, again, like it's, uh-huh. it's novel. We are starting to do that now, but grounding QI, I believe in reproductive justice and research justice, um, and Black feminism will allow us to prioritize community voices and leadership and expertise um, so that we can have authentic and autonomous and affirming communications and collaborations. Um, it will foster critical participation of Black mothers, Black birthing people, Black women scholars, right, as a way to disrupt the colonizing policies, practices, protocols, and processes within institutions that reproduce structural, social, and clinical inequalities and, in, and inequities in hospital-based perinatal health service research, right? The provision of those services and supports as well as those policies within the institution, but also the state and federal level that <clears throat> do impact QI. So that's my vision, and that's what we actually plan to do um, with our sacred birth study here in California. So that was going to be my next point. So tell me about the sacred birth study and how you're planning on embedding territory QI in the study. Right. And so um, the ways in which I said, like, you know, let's look at, like, right, who are the knowledge generators, right? How does um, knowledge get constructed? How does data get stored? and shared, who analyzes the data, interprets the data, what are the implications of that data. So at the very core, the sacred birth study is bringing together, um, let me take us back, sacred birth study, you know, funded by the California Healthcare Foundation, you know, is a study that with a goal to develop a participatory patient reported experience measure of obstetric racism so that hospitals can now describe, measure, 
examine and modify the experience and or observation of obstetric racism as it occurs within sites in the hospital um, through labor, birth, and the immediate postpartum. And we are a team. Um, I am the principal investigator. My co-PI is Dr. Monica McLemore, who's also at UCSF. And my team of scholars include um, Dr. Donna Ayeen Davis, um, as well as Dr. Brittany Chambers, uh, Dr. Emily White Van Gompel. So we are a team of predominantly black women scholars with our accomplice, Dr. Emily White Van Gompel, as well as for the first time that I've seen thus far, one of my co-investigators is actually a state CBO. So it's very important for me in this participatory QI research and, and developing the QI science that I've demonstrated value for community, Black women-led, Black women-serving community-based organizations. And one way to do that is to put your money right where your mouth is. So instead of pushing out a few dollars here, right, as an afterthought or retrofitting someone else's research design, it was important that I demonstrated that I'm valuing a, an entire state CBO, the California Black Women's Health Project, where the CEO is um, Masanya Young Adam. They, will, they are a co-investigator. Uh -huh. So I want to show that the value of the scholarship, right, as, as which is important around not just the disciplines, but, you know, compensation, right? So a state CBI is our co-investigator. Um, we will also be working with um, Black women-led serving um, community-based organizations across Northern, Central, and Southern California. Uh -huh. um, we are going to have a group of community accountability partners, so CAPS. And instead of saying community advisory board, again, it was, language is so very important, right? Language, it's meaning, it's utilization. So to have a community accountability partner, the CBOs are going to hold our, you know, not only the study team, the study itself, but also the funders, right? Uh -huh. To ensuring that there is cultural rigor and integrity and validity in our ethics, in our values, in our methods and methodologies, in our data interpretation, right? As well as the um, implications of that data. So our community accountability partners will be meeting once a month um, where they will look at the data um, that's, being, that's coming out from this measure where black birthing people ages 18 and over who have given birth in a California hospital will be invited to take this survey instrument a PREM, so a patient-reported experience measure for, by, and with Black mothers, Black birthing people, Black women scholars, and Black women-led serving community-based organizations to really get a sense of what they are experiencing from their vantage point uh -huh. in the hospital setting and not from the vantage point, right, of the data scientist or the QI leader or even the QI team, really using the words and language and ways to measure these different experiences of racism in their care. And the um, formative research that's, that's informing 
right? This prem came from interviewing uh, 37 Black mothers and birthing people in Oakland and Los Angeles in 2019. So we're just moving forward in our work. Um, and, and now this is the year where we will validate that prem of obstetric racism. And hopefully, you know, our vision is that hospitals will begin to use this as their QI right tool for them to really begin to assess what's happening across levels of interaction, right? At the individual level, at the level between the patient and clinician, um, the clinician and the system, as well as the community and the system. And really <clears throat> the way the instrument is designed is that using again black women's language and words and exemplars of racism across these different domains, hospitals can look at their score, right? A composite score. Mm -hmm. And let's say one is the highest level of obstetric racism that a patient reports that they experience. If the composite score, let's say, is 0.4, people may think, oh, we're doing really well, but it's a composite score. We will also provide domain-specific scores. So within, right, the phenomenon of obstetric racism, hospitals can look at their different domains of safety, um, <clears throat> autonomy, uh, communications, racism, empathy, and dignity, uh -huh. and, and see where in these different domains are, is their hospital culture, right? The provision of health services creating higher, right, or lower um, uh, uh, rates of experiences of racism and really began to look at the ac actual questions in the survey. And those questions really are translatable into action items to change policy or practice or program, right? And so um, that's what our hope is, is that this will become like, you know, one of the leading tools and some in a hospital's toolkit <clears throat> around addressing um, the racism that's impacting maternal morbidity and mortality, uh -huh. particularly in California. Um, and it can be, um, our hope is that it will also be able to be utilized in different states, right? But we recognize that state policies, right, ha um, impact the way healthcare is provided and delivered, what those healthcare teams, right, look like. Um, and how um, payers for birth, hospital births, can also impact the provision of care and the quality of care. So keeping that in mind that this is uh, a QIM measure that is specific to California, but will have, um, that has the potential to be translated and adapted and adopted in other states. Mm -hmm. So I, I saw a paper recently that came out of California, um, in fact, UCSF, that was um, ex describing black mothers' experiences with racism, like outside of the hospital, just like, you know, in the community. Um, yes. And I'm curious how or whether you will plan to sort of draw a connection between um, the findings of that study, right, and the sort of like racism that takes place within the hospital and how overall those things impact, um, say, medical distrust, like that interaction between 
daily racism outside of the hospital and then racism within the context of prenatal uh, or perinatal care? That is a great question, Max. Yes. So um, some of the leading folks who are doing the work around structural racism in reproductive health, Dr. Brittany Chambers, she is one of our co-investigators. And so that is going to be very helpful as both of us are, you know, are in the, in the, where we are in our program of research, we know we are helping to develop measures of different types of racism and utilizing community partnerships, but also community words and language and experiences on what that looks like and how that can be measured. So in our particular QI um, measure with, with sacred, right? So again, safety, autonomy, communication, racism, empathy, and dignity, um, particularly in the areas of racism, empathy, and dignity, um, the Black women's experiences and the Black birthing people experiences around racism in society, right? So we are hoping this tool helps hospitals to get a better understanding and awareness of how societal racism historically, right, that has been happening for centuries, how that has translated into the policies and practices and programs that hospitals are either doing like overtly or it's being done in a hidden way because it's a part of the culture. So one example of that is that in, in society, right, the, the myth and lie about black bodies being a medical super body, that black bodies, um, we have thicker skin, we endure pain much better or we don't feel pain. That is a kind of example of a stereotype racism. And if we add on gender to that, then our tool will show how the stereotype racism, like that trope of black people don't feel pain, impacts clinical cognition, diagnosis, assessment, and treatment when a nurse or a physician or anyone in the hospital team continues to ignore um, you know, the call button or the patient actually saying like, I'm in pain. And there are countless examples in the qualitative research, both in California and across the nation, that showed this um, lack of responsiveness to black mothers and birthing people reporting discomfort, um, whether that be in the abdomen or their chest and how that has led to increased maternal morbidity. And what we have found in our focus group data and how we're translating the focus group data into the development of this instrument, is that that is a question around um, black women have and birthing mothers have stated that they will sometimes themselves modify their own behavior and language because of fear of that trope being used against them. So we had black mothers and birthing people who experienced a cesarean birth, right? A major abdominal surgery stating that they sometimes um, hesitated even asking for pain medication uh-huh. because they did not want, you know, they didn't even want to go through the experience of being questioned, right? And interrogated about how serious that pain was. So that's uh-huh. an example of the stereotype racism translating into clinical care. The second example is the same group stated that, again, Black mothers birthing people, that they specifically um, wouldn't even ask for the pain medication, again, because they didn't want to not only 
be interrogated because nobody believed them. The second part is that they didn't want to be seen as a drug seeker. So it brings to mind Dorothy Roberts killing the black body right. where the whole you know, analysis around the criminalization of pregnancy and birth and how drug seeking, like that whole, you know, crack um, era where now we're in this kind of opioid um, epidemic, right? The crack crisis and this opioid epidemic where there's so much more dignity and humanity in addiction as disease. But Black folks didn't get that level of dignity and grace, right? Um, in their care, in the healthcare system, in the law enforcement system. So those two things are examples of how stereotype racism and stereotype gender racism for Black mothers and birthing people impacts their own participation and agency in asking for care, but also how the systems have adopted, right, societal um, racist tropes and narratives around Black bodies, but also around Black mothers and women with the capacity to birth and parent. It's all coming into play. So what's really been very, sometimes difficult to listen to the focus group transcripts, but it's also been very insightful is that, again, this prim you know, has the capacity to bridge that and make it real for hospitals who sometimes, hospitals, I'm going to say, we specific, make it real and relevant to folks who probably only study the natural sciences, right? Like who have been embedded in data or biology or chemistry or medicine without the context of social science, humanities, legal studies. And so because I have the representation of social scientists, community-based researchers, anthropology, family medicine with obstetric experience, um, and having CBOs who are representative of different fields in business, lactation, parenting, um, doula, midwifery, policy advocacy, really having um, a body of patient, community, and content experts as the QI team is really going to shift us from the traditional ways of doing QI that don't really involve in in the magnitude, right, the magnitude that the disparity exists should be the magnitude that represents our voices on the team. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do, right? Like if there's a three to four, I said given the three to four fold um, higher risk of dying while giving birth at the national level and also at the state level in California between Black mothers and other mothers, then our QI teams need to represent that same magnitude of difference if we're really going to change the way we value um, the bodies and the birth experiences of Black people. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Scott, thank you so much for such insightful discussion. Um, I look forward to seeing, uh, you know, the results of the sacred birth experience study and hopefully more uh, medical centers are going to sort of uptake the tool that you will have validated by then. And thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about it. Um, Max, thank you for this platform that you're creating. And I'm excited about your journey as well. Um, so yes, let's stay connected and um, let's do this. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.